you know, if we, if we want to look at a map of the UK, we also have to include its 14 colonies that are scattered across the world. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Tamsil Chowdhury, who is a lecturer in public law at Queen Mary University, University of London, co-founder of the Northern Police Monitoring Project and co-founder of Greater Manchester Law Centre. Actually, Tamsil as well, I didn't ask you, like, if you could put your discipline or you could describe your disciplines how would you describe them so obviously law but what else would you say you are it's probably more kind of like socio-legal studies okay. so like looking at the relationship between law and society basically Tanzel, starting off is law political so yeah i think this is a really good starting point uh, for the for the discussion so <clears throat> we, we we might kind of understand this as a kind of um like separate separation thesis between law and politics. Now, in in, in one obvious way, law, law is political, right? Because um, law is a kind of codification or capture of of politics, right? So there's a, a particular discussion about an area. Politicians might develop policy, make a bill, introduce it into parliament, and and, and that bill becomes law. And in in that way, law is political. Here, what we we're talking more about is whether or not just the law, but the kind of legal infrastructure, so judges, lawyers, courts, tribunals, they themselves are um, political. And what I want to kind of try to do is upset this idea that laws claim to be apolitical, that it kind of is trans-historical, that it sits above the humdrum of politics, culture, history, um, is, is a useful myth. And it's useful because it allows law to do stuff that you couldn't do through through politics. And hopefully by the end of you know this this kind of short, short blurb, then we can argue that, that law is law is politics by by another means. And a good starting point is um, an essay that was written by um, uh, another academic, a mate of ours called Rob Knox, who's at the University of Liverpool, and he wrote this essay called Law Austerity. In Salvage magazine. Now, do you want to austerity? Austerity. Yeah. Sick name. <laughs> um, it is. It is. I mean, um, he's he's brilliant for for many reasons, but particularly for for coming up with uh, you know nice like portmanteaus like that. And and so I read a very short quote from uh, the the beginning of his essay. Um, so he says, "Quote on the most basic level, legal rules purport to stand above political action, and so form an external restraint on politics. Although laws may be the product of particular democratic institutions, once they're made, they stand beyond the everyday life of politics. Thus, law serves to insulate particular decisions from everyday popular control." So what Rob's saying here is that law's claim is that it's able to transcend the kind of rabble of politics which is about antagonism disagreement contestation and this is kind of one of the claims of of modernity and 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 law is kind of seen as one of the artifacts of modernity the idea that law is not the the whim of of political rulers that may have been divinely ordained or the decrees of emperors but the the rule of law right so it's it's not uh, a decision that's been made by an individual but it's been made by this kind of abstract uh, uh, legal reason 
And so therefore, like modernity, modern law is this secular, rational body of laws that's made by humans. And it's this institution, this architecture that transcends politics. Now, it's, it's because of these claims that law is especially good at enacting politics, whether it's through uh, statutes or whether it's through the courts and the tribunals. And this is because law claims to be transcendental. It claims to sit above politics. And this is, I, I think, a myth. So laws and, and, and legal institutions and judicial institutions have created this fiction around their institutions that um, what, they, what they do is fundamentally um, apolitical. And because it's apolitical, it therefore kind of immunises it from the kind of criticisms that we would level at political institutions. Because all lawyer, law, lawyers and judges are doing are applying and interpreting laws. They're not doing politics. It's not, it's not something that can be fundamentally contested um, in that way. I'm going to give him a mic drop <laughs> for that. Like, the connection between modern... Like, because I feel like at the moment we're in like a period where we're like kind of like looking at the law to like help us out of crisis. But what Tanzel's reminded me of is that this thing is actually part of how society remains so inequitable, even though it present, presents itself as the thing that is protecting us or making things equitable. I always understand the law or the legal framework as in freezing in power. So it's a group of people who decided who were at the top We've enacted these laws and it freezes in power because power is something that flows to and fro. So how do I stop power going back to those people? I make laws, right? And this is how I see law. It's from it's from society. So even when you were talking about British law, when you watch any kind of like swashbuckling thing where they're kind of getting pirates, it's the king's law, the queen's law. Mm. So it's never been this abstract thing ever. Well, Tanzel's was saying it's, it's because of the Enlightenment, yeah, basically. But, I don't, yeah, know, but well, I don't know how you get that twist, how they made it so how, so it seems transcendental because in its actual, in act, how it's enacted on the spot, it's always for a particular group mm, or mm. person or... Serving. Serving, or yeah. So in, in how you experience in your day-to-day, -day, tells you how it really is. However, theoretically, when you, when it, when you come to understand it, you mm. think the law's meant to protect me, but we know it doesn't, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is a really important conversation that we can maybe come on to, which is, you know, you know, can the law save us? What what kind of transformative potential does the law have? Um, you know, if any, or is it fundamentally and foundationally implicated in, you know, oppression, exploitation, those kinds of things? Mm. You know, is is a legal is a legal project basically kind of salvageable, redeemable, or do we need to kind of basically, you know, burn it? Burn it to the ground and, and, and imagine something. Burn it. But I think we're uh, we're laughing because we obviously the last we've had quite a lot of episodes actually more recently that are focused on this question around how transformative can the law actually be and like whether it was we had obviously the amazing um, women from Jengbra on the show we had Frank on the show like really thinking with what who is the law protecting who it, what is it reproducing. And to what extent can it be? I mean, I mean, I guess your position, Tanzel, is that it can't be reformed. It's. Um, I think you know, pun not intended. The, the jury's kind of still out on that question. I, I mean, I think that the, the law can have strategic value. I don't think it can be transformative in the way that we would understand it. And so, um, it can be used tactically in the short term. Um, you know, for kind of short term gain. But fundamentally, you know, the, the question around transformation is, is political. But when I look at the law, how I always understand the law, whenever it's been enacted for the people, 
it's always used at the same time to disenfranchise the people at some point. So it's never been used in sense of equality, like in its truest sense, helping everyone. Like the rule of law should be, should apply abstractly, right? Mm-hmm. The same rule applies to me or you. No one's above the law. No one's ultra virus, right? But we know if I get arrested and Prince Harry gets arrested, there's two different outcomes. Mm-hmm. So therefore, the Prince law. Andrew. Or <laughs> Prince Andrew. Let's keep it current. Well, listen, I don't want to put my I don't want to put myself <laughs> near that, right? But you get me. You can't go for that guy yeah, right yeah, now, yeah. man. But so therefore, like. I kind of to paraphrase like Bentham, maybe it's like nonsense upon stilts, right? Like it doesn't really make sense. This abstract notion doesn't apply in What's real that world. Nonsense upon, upon stilts. stilts. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Who is it? Bentham. Bentham, yeah. Mm. yeah. This is kind of fundamentally, you know, it that that you know, legal systems, legal orders don't um you know, they're not independent from distributions of, of power, of politics. It necessarily is constituted by them and constitutes those um, distributions of, of power. And, you know, so this is why you have a situation where you have a kind of neutrally drafted law, which presupposes a formal equality between, you know, you and uh, a member of the royal family. Mm. But the way that, you know, the legal process and the legal architecture works will will be different, um, even though you've got something which is, you know, laws that are, you know, uh, that are being applied are, are, are fundamentally the same. Mm-hmm. So what when we think about the relationship between forms of oppression or exploitation, why might the law be a good vehicle to enact it? Yeah, I mean, so I think on, on, the, on this, the, there's, there's quite a lot of ways to answer this question. And forgive me, like, I, I, I am kind of thinking about this as, you know, as an academic, because, you know, it's, it's stuff that I've been thinking about for a while. So I, I think once you make this claim that, you know, law is politics by another means, that it's not something that, that transcends politics. Um, and, and and I think kind of going back, you know, we can talk more practically about how, you know, judges, for example, do politics. Um, then the relationship between law and society or law and the prevailing economic order uh, is not kind of normatively distinct, but they they, they work to, to reinforce uh, one another. Um, so, I mean, w- one last thing I'd say about the kind of law as politics, um, you know, thesis is, is, is that when something is taken into the realm of politics, it immunises itself from criticism in a way that that doesn't happen if it's politicians talking in uh, the House of Commons or um, peers in the House of Lords. And because lawyers and and judges have kind of developed their own specialist discourse they've created this myth around their institutions that what they're doing isn't politics and so you know once think something is embedded in a law and it's ruled over by judges it it fundamentally depoliticizes it in the sense that it takes it away out of kind of control of the demos because it's something that's uh, handled by judges if if you think about like uh, certain uh, rights. Now, these are s- something that's kind of fundamentally adjudicated upon by by judges. Um, and when we think about rights, we think right, we've got to enforce certain rights in courts. Um, and and what what that does is it kind of fundamentally takes a struggle around human rights, civil rights, away from uh, people and popular struggle, and it makes it something that has to be mediated by 
the courts and by the judges. Hands on, but I just yeah. say, but once you elevate law to that level, it becomes something that's so law becomes sacrosanct, right? Mm. So it's something that needs to be adjudicated by experts. Mm. So it moves from the realm of what's from political critique, which we mm. can talk about in the imminent and real, to something where you're talking about moral ethics, what's morally okay. How do you, how do we criticize this law? We, we normally do it morally. So I understand it through like Kantian kind of discourse, talking about law in that kind of sense. Mm-hmm. But like you said, normally we should talk about it at the at the people stage, right? But once you elevate it to this sacrosanct, it becomes about morals, what's morally right, and and then it's your, like whose morals? Yeah, exactly, whose morals, and it becomes this. And then you start making these universalistic claims, like this. Once you make this ruling, it applies to everyone. But how do we how do we critique good or bad law? How do you make good law? How do you make bad law? Mm. Because we understand law is usually a kind of. It claims to be universalist, but it's about differentiated kind of society, right? So you're mm, making mm. universal rules for a society that's full of difference. Mm. It's always going to work. I think that's really. Up. I think that's a really interesting analogy that Tandle gave, though. That like actually, the court as a as a space for mediating struggle is something that takes away the struggle from it and yeah. looks to kind of like obliterate it or neutralize it. Mm, yeah, is that I mean, kind of thing that you mean. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if if we're thinking about um, you know, social antagonism and social conflict, you know, this should be happening out on the streets. It should be happening um, you know, outside of, you know, uh sites of, you know, state power and capital um in in the workplace when we mediate social conflict through the courts um it it depoliticizes it takes that away from the demos from from popular political struggle and so you know th- this is why you know we there there's <clears throat> problems and limits with kind of what we might, might call j- juridifying social struggle right that you know uh, Something that happened. A good example is a kind of pension pension struggle that a lot of um, higher education sector workers are going over, out over massive uh, changes and reductions to to their pension scheme, and and there is a concurrent kind of uh, uh, judicial review uh, claim going uh, through the high court at the moment. That's important. That's an important part of the struggle, but th- th- that kind of mediates what's fundamentally a struggle between management and and labor and 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 it kind of you know it if we put all of our eggs into that basket then it it just neutralizes the power that that labor can to you know not only win on this particular struggle but but to betray their power as a kind of collective force you know kind of going forward that really reminds me tansel's really reminds me of um, when frank was on the show and we were obviously getting really excited because he was like just taking on pretty patel every week mm. and like we're like oh my god you're like the person that's like like saving people and he was like i'm gonna stop you right there let's not over i don't want to over emphasize the power of the law because actually like we should be criticizing it constantly <clears throat> and it's always part of a broad coalition of things that need to be part of the struggle and like actually sometimes this can be something that neutralizes or yeah is that the size yeah no no absolutely and you know a lot of people have kind of written about this and the ways in which uh you know the left or progressive movements have often overly relied upon the the courtroom as arena an arena to do the kinds of politics that they think it can do, this transformative politics, but it doesn't. I mean, I think this is, you know, a really good case in point is the United States. A lot of the kind of infrastructure and, and the ecologies around the left and progressive politics invest a lot of their hope in, um, 
you know, the, the US Supreme Court, which is seen as a kind of guardians of the Constitution. If you win there, then, you know, you, you, you've won, um, you know, you've won everywhere. And, and I think that that's kind of a, a, a bad way of doing politics. And again, it, it, it comes back to this idea that what the judges are doing is not um, apolitical, right? You know, they are, uh, this is law, um, uh, this is politics through law by, you know, just a, just another means of, of, of articulating um, what, what are effectively political judgments. Um, but with all of the uh, institutional prestige uh, that law and legal institutions carry with it, which make it largely immune to the kinds of criticism that we would level at uh, our politicians. Maybe we want to kind of give a, a, a bit more of a concrete way in which judges can be politicians and then maybe talk, yeah. refer back to the, the, the conversation that you were talking about, about how, why law is particularly adept to doing this kind of political work that we could talk about and maybe, you know, look more concretely at like forms of oppression and law's implication in that. So what one of the most kind of popular ways of thinking about law as politics was was articulated um, in the in the seventies with an intellectual movement called critical legal studies, which primarily started in the United States. There was a movement in 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 the UK and in Europe, and one of the main claims of the critical the the crits as they were called was what was called the indeterminacy thesis. And so this thesis was developed by um, the American legal realists in the nineteen thirties, but was kind of developed and, and pushed further by. Um, the critical legal theorists. And, and there are problems with this thesis, but I think it's illuminating and there's something interesting in it. And basically what the thesis says is that you can take a particular legal norm or principle and you can actually interpret it in such a way to, complete, uh, to result in completely different, opposite and antinomous outcomes. And so if the law, if a legal norm doesn't restrain a judge, but actually gives a judge the discretion to arrive at any outcome, then a, a judge is basically a politician, right? They're not restrained in the way that we, that the kind of mo modernity uh, claims that you know the law is not the the whim of rulers divinely ordained or otherwise, mm. but is the rule of law. But if the if the if the law itself is indeterminate, it can be used to uh, produce a myriad of different outcomes. Then 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 judges are politicians. Good example of this is contrasting and comparing two decisions in the United States, Plessy and Ferguson and, and, and Brown and Board. So Plessy and Ferguson was decided in the late 1800s and it, and it was basically about whether or not um, you could have separate carriages for differently racialized people on a train carriage. Um, and the courts relied upon the Equal Protection Amendment, one of the, the, the provisions of the US Constitution. Um, and they said, uh, yes, you can. As long as um, they have uh, equal access to the carriages, then what was called the separate and equal doctrine mm -hmm. um, is absolutely fine. What we would call racial segregation. And also racial segregation, as we know, wasn't just about keeping racialized people separate. It was also about, um, you know, almost unanimously resources for, for uh, uh, racialized people were much, much poorer um, massively, un you know, chronically underfunded, massively neglected by the state. Then you had this big case of Brown and Board in the 1940s, and this was around uh, segregation in schools. And in a nutshell, um, the courts relied upon the very same provision that had been used to um, legitimate 
and and uh, legalize the separate but equal doctrine, what we would call you know apartheid, and say that actually having racially segregated schools was unconstitutional. And so you you're in this situation where you have the same legal norm that in the 1890s was used to um, authorize racial apartheid, and then in the 1940s said that it was unlawful. So that's a, an, a, an example of how this legal norm has been interpreted and applied to produce completely antinomous outcomes. Now, one qualification to that is that if you recognise the indeterminacy of laws, that a judge can take a legal norm and produce completely antinomous outcomes, then that also sounds like that you can use illegal norms to produce transformative outcomes, right? Then you can, you know, absolutely change the world. But I, I would qualify that. I think that legal norms are indeterminate. I think it's it, it's uh, theoretically useful and illuminating to show that judges are not, uh, you know, restrained by law, but they are, they are politicians who do exercise discretion. But the exercise of that indeterminacy is always restrained by larger structures that are beyond the law and the legal system. And I can kind of come on to that later on. Mm -hmm. So what, one of the ways that we can think about uh, judges as politicians is through this indeterminacy thesis, that they do have discretion, that, that, that legal norms and legal principles and this thing called legal reason doesn't restrain judges, but actually gives them discretion to, you know, to make fundamentally political judgments. And going back to the point that you were making earlier on, T, you know, law doesn't sit above the uh, power politics, right? So, you know, there may be this kind of indeterminacy, but the way that the courts are going to apply a particular norm when it comes to someone who is from a, a privileged background um, or is racialized as white, you know, let's say if this is an individual that goes to his friend's house, picks up an AR-15, confronts a Black Lives Matter <laughs> protester, kills two people, injures one of them, right? Yeah, yeah. That law is going to apply to someone else uh, differently. Receipts, said, you know. Recent yeah, yeah. receipts, we love them. So, yeah. So, what I was going to say then, so, so you see in that, in the example you gave there in the uh, indeterminate thesis, right? Mm. So those two examples, isn't that the law acting as it should, right? So it's an abstract thing that sits there. And in the 19th century, the social norm said this, so you, you got a particular outcome when they applied it to their society. Mm -hmm. By the time the 1940s rolled around, society's moved on. They apply that same abstract concept to a situation and come up with a different outcome. I mean, but but then we can't make the claim um, that some, not all, I don't want a straw man, I don't want a broad brush, mm. you know, people committed to the kind of project of modernity. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, um, but then you can't make the claim that the law is trans-historical, right? Because mm -hmm. law is necessarily constituted and constitutes politics, society. So that's why you have the same legal norm that's applied uh, in one way in the 1890s and then complied. Uh, applied in a completely antinomous way in the 1940s. Mm. Let's be real, okay? Let's let's be realists. Mm. You know, this is the claim of the American legal realist. Law does not sit above politics. It's necessarily constituted and is constitutive of the of the political order. The question for us is: Can it rupture? Can it disrupt that political order? I've got a question, right? So when you're talking about the judges, yeah, and I agree with what you're saying, but what do we do, like? within our broad coalitions on the left, let's come back to lo more local to Britain now, when you have like the authoritarian far-right government that we have now that systematically use their power and also their media wing 
to discredit and question judges. And these are the judges which we are saying are imperfect, but with the current situation that we're in now with this government, we end up us having to defend these people that are that systematically marginalise those that we are most care about and want to protect. Like, how do we square that circle? Like, it feels so impossible. But like, that's how extreme, I guess. I mean, are we talking? We're talking about separation of powers here, aren't we? So, like, how do we, how do we on the left like articulate a di- uh, not a. a I don't want to use the word defence, a defence of judges whilst also problematising them as politicians and people that have discretion, which discretion which comes from their lived experiences, which are more likely to be like, they think they're objective, but they're white, middle class, male, rich, elite, elites. So do you see what I mean? Mm, So how mm. do, like, I just feel like so often we're having to, and that's why it's been really good to have so many legal scholars on the show recently, because with like this sort of post-Brexit, like far-right government that we have have now, it does feel like we're having to defend, like we're having to defend something which we maybe wouldn't have done before. If you remember the the kind of uh, prorogation of Parliament mm-hmm. um, enacted by, can you by remind Bajan. the listeners what that was again? So the pro- prorogation of Parliament. So this is this, actually that was a mad day, by the way. Do you remember? To, remember, we, we, <laughs> he crazy. was like. Since, since, since the Civil War, man, like it's mad. Since Charles I, like it's crazy. It's a crazy thing. One of the quirks of the British Constitution is one of the sources of the Constitution is what's called the, the royal prerogative. So these are powers that are historically exercised by the monarch at a time when you know the, the day-to-day running of the country was looked a lot different. We didn't have a, um, a a sovereign parliament. We didn't have you know enfranchisement. The day-to-day running was run by the monarch, and they would exercise the day-to-day functions. So prorogation is, a, is is part of that set of powers that we call the royal prerogative. So what happened is Boris Johnson basically tried to um, stop Parliament from exercising one of its functions, accountability, to critique uh, this this kind of Brexit deal. And to what he what he thought, which is like a big move if you think about it, right? It's like I'm I'm going to shut down Parliament. I'm going to shut down Parliament, and and he he did this through um, initiating the prerogative. So what actually happens is the prerogative formally is exercised by the by the Queen, mm-hmm. but it's on the advice of the Prime Minister. So the thing that is justiciable, the thing that's uh, contested in the court, is the advice that the Prime Minister gives uh, to the Queen for that for that prorogation. Um, and so, what the the UK Supreme Court ruled in 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 the the, the Miller Cherry litigation was that the prorogation was unlawful because it undermined uh, parliamentary sovereignty and parliamentary accountability. But there's a there's a really uh, what we had is a really unusual situation where you you had Corbyn um, and 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 the left kind of finding themselves backing these institutions and the system that. Um, uh, you know, kind of deeply, deeply problematic. You know, there are all kinds of problems with, um, you know, representative democracy, you know, with the whip system. You know, Corbyn was was a, a, a pariah, um, you know, for, for many, many years until he became, you know, the leader of the Labour Party. Um, you know, we also found it with the uh, Miller litigation, which was over whether or not the government or parliament would trigger Article 50 to begin the Brexit process. And then you had the Daily Mail calling them enemies of the people and you had, you know, the, the left in this weird position. That's what I'm, yeah, the enemies of the people. Yeah. Like, shit, that's not good. That's not a good sign. <laughs> it, 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 it is. I mean, you know, if if um, if the judges are um, the protectors of the people, then what, I mean, what do those people look like first and foremost, right? Because I don't know if they, 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 they oh, look the, like us. The, the, what's their face? At the 
she become like this little like quote unquote feminist icon. Who? Baroness Hale. Yeah, with the, yeah. With the spider. With the, with the bro- bro- yeah, yeah. brooch. Do you call it bro- yeah, bro- 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 brooch? Brooch. 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 Spider brooch. Yeah. And so I, I, I think part, part, I mean, there, there is a way in which you can defend the judges, but recognizing that they're absolutely subject to criticism um, for their decisions. And, you know, that, that position has to be kind of quite nuanced. But what I think this. Uh, highlights is an absence in kind of radi- radical left thought over issues of constitutionalism. Yes. Right. And I've been having this chat with a, a lot of my mates, um, you know, many of them who, who you'll know and like and, and are absolutely fantastic. What does um, a constitution look like on the left? Is 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 what we call constitutional uh, and how we understand it now fundamentally kind of bourgeois tied to the uh, tied to the capitalist prevailing capitalist order or is there a form of constitutionalism which is is a socialist constitutionalism which is about workers democracy which is about uh, you know uh, um you know workers councils mass representation those kinds of things i think in britain we struggle with that because it's not something it's established in our tradition 100% so when you look at the states clearly defined and any Britain's in that kind of unique position where they, they had had that kind of social revolution where you've had to write rights down mm. and stand up for your rights and stand by that kind of I guess probably the closest maybe the Chartists when they come to start writing shit down mm. But mm. until you have that the debate in this country seems like what the constitution is amorphous misty murky and that's the conversation you have when the left where did you stand the right because they can tend to be embodied in the kind of aristocracy and upper middle classes. They, they're used to talking about the law and using the law as weapons, really. But the left, not so much. We look at it as hope. We get in the courtroom, it's hope. This mm. is hope. It can be hope. But, but I mean, that's an interesting point, because, I mean, um, what would the, a left constitutionalist project look like? Uh, what we want to do is codify the constitution. I put it in one document like you have in the United States, in Cuba, in Chile, in Algeria, in, in you know, uh, uh, Bangladesh or, or whatever. But there are problems with that. I mean, you know, maybe having a codified document would mean that you're giving too much powers to the courts because they would be seen as the, the kind of guardians of the constitution. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that entertains the problems that we mentioned earlier about mediating social conflict through the courts mm-hmm. rather than, you know, and taking it away from the from the kind of demos. But this is the kind of thing that we need to talk about. What does a constitutionalism look like? And you're absolutely right. The reason why we don't talk about it, I think, you know, is because is we're in this unusual position. You know, the uh, UK is part of a, of a small group of countries with an un- uncodified constitution, which has deep, deep connections to its feudal past. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the the you know one of the uh, unique features of the United States Constitution is that we have a sovereign parliament, and and that was effectively a, a political settlement reached in the late 1600s by you know between a kind of slowly decaying feudal aristocracy and an emerging industrial bourgeoisie, and you had these uh, movements like uh, the Levellers that were trying to enact a more radical form of. Uh, democracy and constitutionalism you know they were defeated for various reasons but you know we, we need to kind of re- rehabilitate that um, you know uh, tradition and update it we need to recognize you know what is the constitution for you know it, it's not only just a kind of a capitalist constitution which i can kind of go into it's also an imperial constitution mm-hmm. the united kingdom is also sovereign over 14 british overseas territories i've written about them and called them colonies mm-hmm. two of them exist within the uk gibraltar and the right. sovereign base areas off the tip of cyprus and parliament 
has the sovereign authority to legislate for these dis different territories. You know, if we, if we want to look at a map of the UK, we also have to include its 14 colonies that are scattered across the world. But don't you feel like, so in, so in the 19th century, there is a kind of a, a, a clearer understanding of how these laws affect you. So like the, the kind of the corn laws and what, there's a, a kind of deeper sense that there's a link between law and politics and the, your, your way of life. In the 21st century, that seems to be a bit, a little bit more ambiguous, right? So people don't feel the law in the same way, and so it might be depends who you are, though. Well, even even yeah. even even as depends who you are. So even as if you're kind of racialized as black, you feel the law in a certain particular way, but you don't feel it in that way where that you can labour to change it and you can get yeah. some kind of result. Mm -hmm. So like you have those kind of movements like the Levellers, the Chartists. You have all these movements in the 19th century, 20th century, not so much. Maybe the Black Panther movement. Mm. And but well, the unions or the, or the unions, but the unions again. There's a color bar, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's a different way of how you're enacted, and it's, and it's gendered and all those mm. things. So there's a different way law. There's a different way law is felt in everyone's life that it's that it wasn't that it wasn't in the 19th century. I think maybe what happens in you know the 1900s in particular is, is much more of a kind of consolidation of the you know of the project of, of modernity and and that that you know law is the you know the the victory is in, uh, you know, the the courtrooms, um, and there's less of a awareness of you know laws and legal systems implication um, in 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 those people's very um, oppression, exploitation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, again, this is a question, uh, you know, which we can come back to is is why why is it that the law is particularly adept to doing those kinds of things? And why is it? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Like that. <laughs> um, I, so I, th I think when when you kind of recognise like um, that, you know, law is something that doesn't sit above politics. It's co-constitutive of the prevailing political order. Then um, th this thing that we call uh, a legal order, legal system, um, isn't something that's necessarily redeemable. Or if we want to think of another type of legal order, um, it's not this one that we're talking about. Maybe we're talking about a kind of a, a proletarian legal system um, or whatever. Um, so we, we, let, let's talk about kind of law and, and racial oppression. Now, actual racialized distinctions in law tend not to um, exist. And again, this is kind of part of the 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 you know, selling points of, of, of modernity. So, I mean, you know, historically you have certain laws which make racial distinctions, like um, in uh, apartheid South Africa, um, you had what was famously called the kind of the, the York uh, Talbot opinion on, on, on slavery um, in the UK. Um, or you might have more coded forms of distinction, which are, you push at them and, and they're fa fundamentally racialized. But there are several ways in which laws which are neutrally drafted or which are quote unquote colorblind can easily reproduce racialization. One example that I used earlier on was the Equal Protection Amendment and Plessy and Ferguson and the Brown and Board, mm -hmm. one which authorized racial segregation, one which um, uh, criminalized it. And, you know, ones that will be familiar to your, your listeners are, are kind of stop and search laws. You know, these are fundamentally neutrally drafted you know they're not saying uh telling you know police officers to uh, use these powers against racialized communities and it's the reason why the, the these 
uh, that we have this the, the enforcement uh, disproportionate stop and search against racialized communities I think we can push and say it's not about disproportionate stop and search it's about the social control of racialized communities through this seemingly le- neutral legal architecture um, and so you know that's kind of a, uh, an illustrative way of the way way in which laws which are neutrally drafted which have all kinds of checks in place are used to socially control racialized populations. We see this also with uh, joint enterprise laws um, and and its intersection with um, the gangs matrix. And I'll offer like one other final example, which I think is really um, illustrative, which is offered by a guy called uh, Anthony Angie. He's one of the kind of top um, scholars of uh, international law, uh, primarily through a kind of post-colonial perspective. And he was one of the progenitors of this school of thought called TWAIL, which stands for Third World Approaches to International Law. And one of the things that he said that international law does, and again, it's through laws which are colorblind, um, is that they produce what's called a dynamic of difference. And so what he meant by that is that international law is constantly implicated in the process of creating this alleged gap between two cultures. But they won't call them, you know, white people and racialized people, but they'll call them like civilized and non-civilized. And so the what pub, what international law is about is the attempted bridging between the so-called civilized and non-civilized world. So for example, an uncivilized nation maybe one that hasn't opened up its borders to free trade. You know, that might be considered uh, 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 uncivilised. And therefore, the aberrant nation, this un- uncivilised state, has to be brought into line with the rest of the civilised states that practices free trade. So there's nothing there about racialized populations, but often this has been used as a pretext to, you know, uh, imperial conquest in the global south. And we see this in more contemporary articulations. I mean, the references to civilized uh, nations was was dropped subsequently in a lot of international legal instruments, but we see this around a lot of the discourse around democratization or humanitarian intervention, that these states are aberrant, they are inhumane, and therefore, and it tends to be states within the global south, and therefore, international law authorizes us to uh, in, in, invade um, and, and and fundamentally restructure these uh, countries. Thank you so much for that. Um, Tanzil, but do you think that those ish, those things that you just spoke about there, in terms of how we're able to differentiate between um, demo- like those that are democratized and those that aren't, or like the West and the, like the the West being superior, don't you feel like some of those things are kind of live right now, being flipped on their head? Like how are you act like the myths are kind of more and more, like even on a day to day basis, I feel like being shown for what they are and people have got to make a decision as to whether they want to recognise these juxtapositions or these contradictions as what they are. Like, for example, obviously on the 5th of January in 2021, like what happened at um, Capitol Hill. Like, how can we set, how can these people keep saying that they are the the civilisers or they're the people that understand what is best for society more than others when you are literally, you're, you've just got a different way of showing. In its purest sense, the law is it's like an ideal, right? So if it was in its truest, its natural form, sorry, in that abstract form, if you if it applied properly, the hope is that it could help everyone. It can be that transformative thing. But I guess my, my, my point is, maybe coming back to the episode we did, did mm-hmm. with David Waring, in talking about how the law is used to justify invading mm-hmm. Iraq, Afghanistan, etc. And like, 
people are like, yeah, well, we're doing that because we're going there to help them because they're violent, whatever. And it's like, well, is violence the issue? Because I can tell you about your country and what <laughs> you like. As in, do you know what I mean? Like some of these things, yeah, I, people have always said that there's been these juxtapositions. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's like mm-hmm. a new thing now to be like, oh, actually, like mm-hmm. Britain is very racist colonial empire. I just mean that like more and more and more the things that you're talking about, Tanzo, are just becoming yeah. more evident. And it's how are they going how to... How do you square the circle? How do you square the circle? But how are they going to keep justifying themselves as being the true initiators and object, uh, objective forces of the of, of the law? I don't know. Like I said to you, I think in the pure theory, people think like... I think it's like the kind of application, like if you have a place that's lawless, in inverted commas, like... If I brought the rule of law here in its purest form, would have order. But I think our government, how, but but again, like using their epistemologies and how mm-hmm. they understand, mm-hmm. how they project what law is or what knowledge is, they aren't doing that. And it's like, as in mm-hmm. lawless, mm-hmm. the government's fucking lawless. Mm-hmm. We literally have a lawless government. But, like, do you know what I mean? They can do whatever the fuck they want. But I, I think someone gave the argument one time, I can't remember, when Bush and Gore had that um, the election. And it's the argument they said at the time. So if that happened in a in the global south, I love. Sorry, I love that. You know when Bush and Gore had that. <laughs> <laughs> I just no, I know, I know, I love it. But it's you know like, that, time, that time. That time. But you know, like, so the argument was like, look, if they, we had a major kind of issue over democracy and elections, and society, society didn't collapse. All, all, it function, but if you look at the global south, when they have those disputes, it it collapses, and mm. like, that's the example how the rule of law, rule of law is working. In in our states, we can have disagreements, and we can we can be on tenant hooks, but the system works. Legals, the legal we have legal we have legal recalls, and it's restorative, and it all functions properly. And again, I think Max Weber came had a similar argument. He said I, the law works because we can have the kind of selection of elites, and it doesn't fall apart. Mm. Whereas if you go to the global south, and like, like you said, from their point of view, you can see what they're talking about, right? You can, but I I'm not like, saying I agree. No, but, no I know, but, yeah. I know. Of course, we don't agree, but like, I just feel like it's getting harder and harder for them to. Sorry, Tanzu. No, 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 no. Yeah. Okay, okay, just gonna say it's getting harder and harder for them to 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 justify that stuff. Mm. I do really think so, and like like we've said on this show before, like when we're talking about history and um, people getting annoyed about statues and whatever. Like, no, what you're saying is, you're not saying you want more history. You're not, so you're saying that we're trying to erase history. You're trying to say that we're trying to change um, change things that have always been this way. Um, but we're actually saying, no, we're actually saying to you, we want more history. We want to know more. And we want to recognise these things as to, as to what there are, they are. And you're saying, no, you need to just do this because we say this is what is of, what is it of, of value. So I know I'm talking really abstractly now, but I just mean, I just think it's getting hard. Every time we have someone like or as brilliant as Tanzil on the show, it's like, how are they going to keep doing this like over and over again? But, and I think... If in the modern moment, that's the problem because we're pushing back and we're critiquing these things that were just seen as a given, and not just kind of, not just saying we want to change it, but actually critiquing it and putting it apart and seeing whose interests they serve, where power power lies. It's disturbing for the whole project of modernity, and that's and that's a big thing. Like you're questioning the very nature of reality, right? Of the area of how it's constructed as it is right now. Mm. So you could imagine the pushback. The pushback is going to be crazy because you're saying this whole. Fundamentally, we're all saying this is fundamentally wrong. And last thing, like the pushback. Okay, let's. De- I'll debate you, and you're like, no, 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 not on those terms, on these terms. And it's like, okay, well, you don't, you don't want to have that conversation then. <clears throat> Sorry, we're bad. We're, we're doing our. No, no, <laughs> no. no I, you come in. No, no. I think it's really interesting. I mean, 
you know, if if the rule of law means that, I mean, if the rule of law has been responsible. So if, if we associate the rule of law with what, you know, so-called, you know, Western states have done, then, you know, the rule of law means, you know, climate breakdown, um, you know, imperialist interventionist wars, uh, police brutality on a, you know, uh, a mass scale, all, all, all of these kinds of things. Then the next question becomes, is what the state's doing um, undermining the rule of law? Or is it actually the rule of law working as it's intended? That's it. That's it. That's and it. and I think there's something more interesting in thinking about it through the second way. It, it, it was like when all of this stuff with the prorogation or whatever. And the prorogation, I mean, I, I couldn't give, I don't, couldn't really care too much about it. I mean... You can say you couldn't give two fucks. You, you couldn't give a <laughs> shit about it, yeah. But, you know, my, 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 you know, when I was speaking to colleagues of mine, they were saying, like, this is an absolute violation of constitutional values. And I'm thinking, well, actually, this is probably h- how the, the constitution is intended to work. You know, it's, it's a relic of, uh, of, of, of feudal times. I mean, there, there, there was co- kind of criticisms of the judgment um, that I, w- I was kind of sympathetic to. It's, it, these institutions are... You know, they're 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 deeply, you know, to to put it very very diplomatically, you know, they're they're deeply problematic. But kind of going back to what we're saying is, you know, what we've got to do is flip the question on its head. The problem isn't the absence of the rule of law. The problem maybe is 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 is, is the presence of the rule of law. We've got to try and package what that means. Mm. It almost seems like it's working as intended, right? Mm. So. Therefore, so that brings us back to, therefore, can it be transformative? If it's working as intended and serving those interests of the current, whatever moment we're in, it's not designed to help me. And I think, depending on who you are and where you are, you understand that. You understand that's the status quo. And just to follow up on Tiso's point slash question there, one final thing I want to talk about maybe on the show is that can the law be transformative for us getting rid of capitalism my, my answer would be no it can't i'm sorry uh, to say that boom um, <laughs> drop the mic done that's it. Let's, go. Done. let's go mcdonald's um, <laughs> get some night trainers exactly <laughs> um yeah i mean okay so it, it, what we're talking about when we're talking about law is um a particular kind of historical artifact right so you know, laws have existed in different forms in different societies. So feudal law is very different to uh, law in capitalist societies, would be very different to law laws with different means of production, uh, modes of production, like tributary systems, plantation slave societies, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason I make this point is because there is fundamentally a relationship between the legal order and the prevailing social relations that 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 would be my kind of position and once you make that claim then the law as we currently understand it can't be used to redeem uh you know it can't be used to be transformative so you know i don't want to be kind of a a vulgar marxist here but you know a lot of kind of marxist social theory is quite illuminating on this question of whether or not law can be transformative so what the marxists have generally said and there's there's a couple of like schools of thought in this is, is this where you say it? I, I, I think so, yeah, yeah. But but I, got, I, I kind of reject some of the orthodoxies because I think there's also 
different um, processes of differentiation beyond class, which have to do with racialization, um, gender, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what the Marx is, there's a couple of schools of thought. So what law is is effectively just a reflection of the um, economic base, right? So the kind of base superstructure metaphor, and therefore. The, the law is fundamentally tied to capitalist social relations, so it's not going to do anything other than produce and reproduce capital accumulation. I think that's a little bit of a weak argument because there are clearly moments where the law does something which appears to be against uh, capital, albeit in a very, very kind of mediated way. So the, the response to that kind of, uh, what we call the kind of determinist argument, that the economic basis determines a legal system and legal order, is this what we call Laura's ideology. And so obviously kind of, you know, a lot of theorists around, um, uh, particularly a lot of Marxist social theories writing about um, um, ideology have said that, you know, systems of capital can't be maintained purely by what they call extra economic uh, force or coercion by, by kind of physical violence. You need um, what Gramsci calls, uh, you know, a, a consent, you know, a common sense. And law is a form of kind of ideological domination which obfuscates the the unequal relations of exploitation, right? So I come to you um as a laborer and you're you're a, a, a you own the means of production, but law frames our relationship as two contracting individuals. I'm selling you my labor power and in return you're going to give me uh, a wage. And, and what the legal ideology does there is to fundamentally obfuscate the uh, unequal power relations there, right? You're, you're essentially my exploiter. I'm being drawn to you because I, there's no way that I can see socially reproduce other than uh, begging or selling my labor power. The, fi- the, the, the third way in which the Marxists have conceived of it is what's known as the com- commodity theory of law. So this was articulated by a famous Soviet legal theorist called Evgeny Pashukhanis. And he basically said that there is what was called the homology between the commodity form and the legal form. And what that basically means is that the, the, the legal form in, in capitalism is basically a mirror of the relationship between a contracting worker and an owner of the means of production. So in feudal legal systems, there was baked into the legal systems a recognition of difference between poor people, between women, Whereas what you have in capitalist legal systems is we, what we call the formal equality of law. You might be um, Richard Branson or you might be um, you know, someone who's really, really destitute. But under the eyes of capitalist legal systems, we are assumed to be formally equal. And that mirrors the commodity uh, form, right? That even though you have, the explo- uh, you have the owners of the means of production who's going to exploit your labour and the poor person that has to sell their labour power the commodity form presumes that they are equal contracting individuals. And so the legal form, the law under capitalism, mirrors that kind of abstraction. The final way that we can think of it is that law is constitutive of the capitalist social order. So it's not like the determinist argument that I mentioned at the beginning, that law merely is, is, uh, reflects the economic base, but law actually creates that economic base, economic social relations, right? And, 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 and it's not only constituted by them, but it's constituted by it. Now, if you think that law is constitutive of it, 
then what you're saying is actually, well, law can be repurposed to fundamentally change those social relations. This is where I, I'm, I'm kind of in this school of thought, but I stop just before the claim that law can be used to change those social relations. I take more the kind of Althusserian line. This is what he calls the relative autonomy thesis. Law can do a little bit. Law has some normative autonomy from the economic base, but in the final instance, it's the economy that determines particular legal outcomes. So I'll give you a practical example which seems as if the law is doing this kind of anti-capitalist thing. So perhaps one of the most important human rights struggles was the um, fight over the working day, right? And you have a, a series of factory acts that are introduced. And so what you have there is the law appearing to limit capital's ability to exploit its workers, right? Because you're reducing the working day from like 12 hours to seven hours, right? So there's less time for exploitation. But even though that's a victory in terms of limiting capital, A, you're still maintaining that relationship of exploitation. You're selling uh, your labor power to the owners and means of production for capital accumulation. And B, Capital, obviously, as we know, is incredibly good at adapting new strategies to exploit you. So they'll f f figure out new ways of exploiting you rather than over 12 hours doing it within seven hours. And so my, I, I kind of am in that kind of Althusserian line of thought that law, as it's cu currently conceived within a capitalist society, has this relative autonomy, but it's still determined by capitalist social relations. So we can win these short-term gains. We can get more pay. We can get uh, you know shorter working hours, better work conditions. But for us to fundamentally disrupt capitalism, that wouldn't. We would have to conceive of another word for what law is doing there. It's not capitalist law, but we might have to call it proletarian law. That is. That's so sick. I might do law. No, honestly, I'm sat here like, <laughs> T, do. we've done the wrong, we've done the wrong discipline. No, no, no you that. don't want to, you, you want to. Um, no, no, I read, um, ben, what's it? No, Blackstone's Fragment on Government. I was like, nah, it's dead. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, it's dead. It's dead. <laughs> Blackstone's one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was like, you're a good teacher. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. No, and, and like, uh, I just feel like I've just been on a little, like, yeah, 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 I feel sick, like I've been on a little journey. sick. I, I really appreciate you know you inviting me here and and also all, all all the work that you've done with the podcast you know thanks man we, we all appreciate it out there you know in in whether it's you know out on the streets uh, in the labour unions in the community groups in the police monitoring groups you know what you're doing is 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 really important work we're a very tiny tiny piece yeah. of the broad coalition <laughs> so, no but thank you so much for saying that Tandle but ultimately like we are we're just we're just recording recording the, the theory that you legal guys, stuff is that sick. is so is it no but it's the way that Tanzel was just able to show how the law can make itself look transformative in reality you're just oh you're just you're just mixing it up a bit yeah, yeah. But, and then reaffirm and then reifying what it was that was exploiting me anyway but i guess if you think about like if you think about like um like for example the, the, the kind of struggle for votes the enfranchisement of women like white women got in the 1920s and it's an incremental change. It wasn't until like the 1960s that black women got in. It's when the social order decide and those victories are always small and incremental and they come at a cost. So people in the in real life pay with their lives, right? Mm. The, the, the system doesn't, but mm. these people pay with their lives, man. Tanzel, thank you so much for coming on the show. I feel like I've learned so much.
um, again. Like I feel like we should pivot. So, um, so I've incited you from a sociology podcast to a law podcast. Yeah. The law people <laughs> have been blowing my mind these Listen, last few weeks. Since, since Frank coming. And Jagba. Yeah, 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 no, no, that has upset me, bro. Yeah, that was upsetting. <laughs> that was mm. upsetting. But yeah, yeah important thank work. You, thank you so much for coming on the show, Tanzel. Um, listeners, thank you, obviously, for joining us each week. And Patreon's got another episode for you now over on the Patreon. See you next week. Bye. See ya. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 